Welcome back to Studs. I'm Daniel Lazar. Studs explores and honors working. It also honors the life's work of the oral historian and legendary Chicago radio host, Louis Studs Turkle. And in my effort to close the social distance, Studs gives me a chance to check in with good, hardworking people and take a deep dive into what they do for a buck. Hey, thank you so much for tuning in. And if you're a loyal listener and you like to support independent creators, please support Studs over at patreon.com studs. I linked to it in the show notes. Look, I'm committed to keeping Studs free for all of you. And I'm not going to pressure anyone to drop their hard-earned bucks on my podcast. But if you dig studs and you want to do your part to keep it going, well, I offer some pretty, pretty, pretty cool rewards to studs patrons. You should check it out. Again, that's patreon.com studs. And hey, if the time isn't right for you to donate to the studs podcast, I get it. We're good. Totally. But it would mean the world to me if you could just tell a pal or two about this podcast. Maybe recommend an episode that you know they'd love. Twist their arm a little bit if you got to. You don't have to, but you can. I'm just saying, I wouldn't be against it. And I'd like to seize this moment to give a shout out to a brand new Studs patron, Eric Spencer. Now, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you might remember Eric Spencer from season one. Eric is a letter carrier, and he's also the president of the Vermont Letter Carriers Association. And in so many ways, Eric is the embodiment of my vision for this podcast. He's a long-lost friend with whom I was able to reconnect in the throes of this pandemic. We hadn't been in touch for some two decades, but we were able to unite and reconnect over our work. But more than that, Eric spoke poetically about the joys that his work brings him, but he was also open to sharing the frustrations and the grinding nature of his work. He was, to say the very least, a splendid guest, and I am so honored that he is now a patron of this podcast. I'll go even further. It gives me warm fuzzies to know that there's a letter carrier out there doing his rounds in Vermont, listening to my efforts to dive into workers' lives on this here podcast. Thank you so much, Eric, for participating in this project. Thank you so much for supporting it. And you heard it here first, pal. I'm going to try to sucker you on to the workers' roundtable at the end of this season. I hope you will. You would be so good at that. Eric Spencer, if you're out there, if you're listening to this episode... You are hereby invited to join me on the Workers' Roundtable. And given Eric's long-standing interest in history and politics and global affairs, I know he's going to thoroughly enjoy this episode. Today, I'm in conversation with Rachel Dickstein. Rachel manages a uniquely compelling project at the Hohenschönhausen Prison Memorial in Berlin. Now, if you're not familiar with Hohenschönhausen Prison... <laughs> Consider yourself lucky. Uh, It's a notorious Stasi prison that might well be the ultimate symbol of terror that the East German communist regime inflicted on its citizens for two generations. As part of this cross-cultural project, Rachel and her colleagues empower victims of political violence by pairing Middle Eastern refugees living in Berlin with former Hohenschönhausen prisoners 
to create a challenging cross-cultural dialogue that brings down walls and builds bridges. Now, before developing this project at the Hohenzollernhausen Prison Memorial, she organized tours and workshops at Sachsenhausen, the Nazi concentration camp just north of Berlin. Rachel discusses her work as a project manager and as an educator. And I'm really excited to share our discussion with you. In fact, I should say that Rachel and I recorded this discussion some time ago, and I was planning on saving our conversation for a stud season devoted to educators. But with my school year careening to a close, I gotta say I'm feeling a little less committed to an education season. And anyway, I've been really eager to share Rachel's reflections on her work. So here we go. My conversation with Rachel Dickstein. Rachel Dickstein, welcome to Studs. Thank you so much for being here with me. You are a project developer at the Hohenzollernhausen Memorial here in Berlin. How do you describe what you do? Basically what I do at Hohenzollernhausen is I am a historian, project developer, and project manager all in one. And then my internal job titles, they alternate between research associate and project employee. And basically, I am working with the two-year model project, New Transmission Formats in Historical Political Education. Um, And this is a project that's funded by the Federal Commissioner of the Chancellery, so the Chancellor of the Prime Minister, for Culture and Media. And basically, the memorial had applied for funding when the grant competition was announced to the public. The memorial won the funding for the project and then needed two employees to conceptualize the project details and carry out the project. Um, So the job posting was for a research associate on this project. I applied for it and I am one of the two uh, people who got the job offer and is now working on the project together with my colleague Janina Bergle. What I do is I think of what audiences missing from the memorial or what audience is underrepresented in our memorial. And then I use my, uh, basically my critical thinking skills, marketing savvy to then think up ways to attract these groups and speak to them directly uh, with creating new educational formats, as well as creating uh, social media advertising. And just to explain von Schönhausen for anyone who isn't familiar with it. So von Schönhausen is a memorial now and a museum open to the public. It used to be the central interrogation center of the Stasi, so the East German secret police, um, back in the German Democratic Republic during the Cold War. It sounds like fascinating work. I, for one, am certainly fascinated. I hope you might tell me how you got to Hohenschoenhausen. Can you walk me along your path to the prison? <laughs> yeah, well, that's, uh, that's a long path. And basically that path pretty much started right before I moved to Berlin in 2012. Um, so back in the day, I was studying music history at Oberlin Conservatory in Ohio. And trust me, it'll all make sense in the end. This sounds uh, kind of all over the place. But um, so basically, I'm a native San Diegan, but I moved to Ohio for my studies in 2008, was studying at the Oberlin Conservatory, music history, uh, upright bass with a focus on punk, actually, 1980s American hardcore punk. 
I applied for a Fulbright research grant. I applied for 1980s East German punk research. Because of my studies, I was actually forced to learn German because there's so many German language composers. So uh, you can probably see that already at that time, uh, me coming from musicology, I had a great interest in the cultural and sociological side of history, like looking at music theory analysis, cultural historical analysis, music performance. But I realized during my Fulbright year here in Berlin that I wanted to make an even bigger impact in the world, like not just being a professor at some obscure university or working with select students teaching punk history, but I was thinking, okay, how do I make a bigger impact? And I started kind of looking more into general history and politics and government. And I figured out, well, not going to really be able to do that with a bachelor's of music in music history. I need to study politics and or history to increase my knowledge base, get credentials for that, and finally move into the a more political and public realm. So basically, I applied to master's programs and ended up studying European history at the Humboldt University in Berlin and comparative history and civilizations at the um, Université Paris Diderot, so in uh, the university in Paris. And basically, my focus at that time was on European foreign policy in and public perceptions of the Middle East during the Cold War. And uh, my master's thesis at the time focused on German and French foreign policy, newspaper discourses, and public opinion polls during the Six-Day War, 1967, and the Yom Kippur War in 1973. And that's actually, a lot of times people are like, okay, well, where did that come in? Uh, where did Israel come into the mix when, how does that even connect with my interest in European history? Um, I have to say that my motivation for that it was that, it, this was back in, I think it was 2014, um, there was a war between Gaza and Israel just before I left for Paris for my semester there. And there were all these um, anti-Israel reactions and actually a lot of anti-Jewish sentiment, a lot of um, anti-Semitic propaganda I was seeing against Israel, also from classmates of mine who were self-proclaimed Marxists. So I was seeing this left-wing, uh, radical left-wing anti-Semitism, and I thought that this was really interesting. Like, okay, this is a right-wing phenomenon, a left-wing phenomenon. This is something that was new to me. You know, being Jewish in California, I never had issues. So I decided to kind of go into that. Like, I don't go away from problems. I don't start hiding my Judaism. And I, I started saying, yeah, like, yeah, I'm, I'm a proud Jew, and I'm going to explore how this perception developed. During my studies, a classmate in my course on the Stasi told me that the Hohenschönhausen is hiring tour guides, and he knew that I had interviewed prisoners during my Fulbright year who had been uh, in Hohenschönhausen because I interviewed them back when I was researching uh, 1980s East German punk um, and looking at, okay, who was considered uh, the opposition in East Germany. So I thought, okay, well... I need to support myself financially while writing my thesis, and I uh, applied for being a tour guide at Hohenschönhausen, got it. Um, it's a freelance job. It's, it's not a full-time job, um, and I saw that I wasn't going to find a full-time job by the time I had my diplomas in hand, 
So I then started adding on uh, freelance jobs. So it started going like word of mouth and I had a good reputation already at Hohenschönhausen. Um, so then I started working at Stasi Museum. So the former headquarters of the Stasi. I also started working at Sachsenhausen Memorial and Museum and then uh, the Berlin Wall Memorial. And that's actually when I came across the job posting for my current project. And I found that this was the perfect job for me because it finally it was something that combined my interests in Cold War history, uh, Middle Eastern politics, um, European perceptions of the Middle East and of the people coming from there. So dealing with refugees from Syria, from Afghanistan and working mainly with students, which is what I did a lot with uh, through my tours. And that's my favorite age group to, to work with, I have to say, is like high school, university students. And it also combined my project management affinity, my history and global history knowledge, my knowledge of politics and my teaching presentation abilities. So it really was, it was, it was amazing that this job popped up at just the right time. And uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's how I ended up here. Well, a little bit of serendipity matters, but so does a lot of hard work. If you don't mind, I want to take a stop along your path. You had mentioned that you worked at the Sachsenhausen Memorial also, Sachsenhausen being a notorious concentration camp, Nazi-era concentration camp, uh, maybe 20, 30 kilometers north of Berlin. Would you talk a little bit about what you did there and how you reflect on it? Yeah, so basically my experience at Sachsenhausen was particularly personal uh, because my uh, my grandfather was a Jewish prisoner there, had to do the death march. Um, but just to make sure everyone's on the same page, um, I can t say a little bit about the concentration camp itself. Yeah, yeah, please. So it was a camp created in July 1936 with Heinrich Himmler as the head of the SS, so the Schutzstaffel. Um, and basically the SS divided Germany into three zones, so to speak. So you had the north, which was then Sachsenhausen, in the middle of Germany, which was Buchenwald. Um, I, my uh, great-grandmother was, was there as a prisoner. And then you had the south, Dachau. The thing is with Sachsenhausen, it wasn't a death camp, but there were experiments done there, like medical experiments. There were experiments with mass execution, like seeing, okay, what's going to work? for the death camps when we build those up and we, we start bringing Jews into, into Auschwitz, let's say. So they had a small trial gas chamber there. Um, and then of course there was a high death rate, even though it wasn't a death camp, there was a high death rate because of death through labor. Um, you know, the whole Arbeit macht frei, work makes sets you free, that propaganda that was put on the, on the front gate. There was a lot of forced labor in the camp itself, but also in these satellite camps around there. Most Jewish prisoners had been going to the death camps um, as part of the final solution. But because the, of the Red Army front closing in, many of the Jewish prisoners were then transferred to the German camps, uh, start like the, the camps in, located in Germany starting in 1944. Um, and then they had to do the, uh, the death march. And that's actually where my grandfather's history comes in. So he was in hiding. He's from Czechoslovakia. His mother was Hungarian, his father Polish. They were in hiding at one point in Krakow, um, were turned over to the SS by neighbors who basically ratted them out. 
at that point, because the Red Army was closing in, they were brought then to um, Ravensbrück. I think that my grandfather's mother was first brought to Buchenwald. At any point, they were separated. Um, my grandfather's father was killed, I believe, in Ravensbrück. Um, his baby sister was killed. It might have been in Ravensbrück or Buchenwald. Ravensbrück was originally a female concentration camp. Um, but at that point, they were mixing and they created a part for men, for male prisoners. And then at one point, my grandfather was transferred to Sachsenhausen. And because this was right at the end, 1945, he had to do the death march where he was forced to, to walk on foot for several kilometers um, a day with very little food. I mean, he didn't have much food anyway, but even less uh, in the cold. Uh, this was in the, in the spring. Um, so it was still very wet, cold outside. And he managed to make it because the Soviets came just in time. So actually, uh, Soviets freed his column of the death march, gave him food. And he had been in camp with uh, French uh, prisoners of war who took pity on him. He was just, uh, I think it was, he was 12 years old. And they said, OK, we can't just leave this, this little boy here. So they took him with them on a train to a suburb around Paris and taught him French on the way. He's very gifted with languages. He ended up speaking eight uh, by the time he died. Uh, he was on to learning Spanish because he was then in Los Angeles. Um, but yeah, so he basically lived near Paris, speaking French, all that. Didn't want to leave France, but there is this uh, Jewish agency that then paired him up, was able to locate his mother. And they found out that they had a cousin in the U.S. who could then sponsor for them. So they were able to go as the last survivors of their family to the U.S. and then become naturalized uh, citizens. Yeah, that, but that, that's, that's, uh, that was, that's my personal connection to the concentration camp. And I always told this story while I was working there. Rachel, first and foremost, I'm moved by your story. Being of Jewish ancestry, I have similar such stories in my family, but I... No matter how many of these stories I hear, uh, I'm always touched and, frankly, overwhelmed by them. And your motivations to work at Sachsenhausen and to try to shed some light on the darkest chapters are clear. It, it makes perfect sense. You did student workshops and tours at Sachsenhausen. Would you be so kind as to talk a little bit about that work, how you did it, and how you feel about it? Yeah, so what I did at Sachsenhausen, I, I did tours in French, English, German. So I had students from all around the world. And what I really wanted to portray in the tours was how this is still relevant today and how this also affects me personally um, today is basically how we are remembering the history and how we're remembering the treatment of Jews and what the narrative has been around concentration camps, whether in West Germany or East Germany. Uh, I actually had a Belgian group um, they said, oh, yeah, like the Jews, they have those big hats. They were thinking of the Hasidim who were in, I think, like around Brussels. They're like, they sell diamonds. I'm like, okay, yeah. Right. Like the, right. Basically, I was there to show, hey, look, like I'm Jewish too. I don't look anything like that. 
And I think that was really important for me to be the descendant of someone who had been there for being Jewish, but also showing, hey, he didn't look like that either. My grandfather was secular and I'm there telling that to students directly. And that's really important for me. And I see this light go on in, in their eyes, like they're, they're, they're getting it like, hey, I'm just like you. They just didn't have that contact before. And I'm telling them this directly. And I tell them, hey, this isn't just a historical thing. I think that's also important for me to, to portray. And I say, hey, like I had someone in one of my classes tell me in a class on the Middle East, because she was like a Marxist, anti-Israel, pro-Palestine person who was saying, oh, uh, the Jews who got killed, that was their fault because they didn't assimilate properly. And I say, that's the Marxist-Leninist narrative that also was circulated in both West and East Germany that circulates today. And I want to make it clear that this is not okay and it's not factually true. And this was something that was very important for me. And I think it was also very important for me to emphasize the suffering of Jehovah's Witnesses and Sintin Roma, because a lot of times, especially in the German curriculum, I feel as if a lot of people focus in specifically on this many Jews were killed and they don't really talk about the other groups. So I think that was really important for me is to also tell their stories and show how diverse the uh, victim groups were in the, in the camp. And all, also, I think what was important for me was making them not just numbers, but like really breathing life into the stories and showing that relevance today. So I, I think that was really important for me is, is humanizing the history, not trying to, to traumatize anyone, not trying to make it overly emotional, but just telling it how it is, how I see it in my experiences as the descendant of an eyewitness. Right. Now, of course, it is, perhaps despite your efforts, it is overwhelming and it is emotional and it can be traumatizing. Can you talk a bit about how the overwhelming nature of that space in which you were teaching, can you, can you talk a little bit about what it's like to teach in such an overwhelming space? Um, it was definitely more emotionally taxing than my work at the Stasi Museum, Berlin Wall Memorial, and Hohenschenhausen. But this, it was definitely heavy. And I think I, I noticed how personally I took it when I once saw people like picking up the flowers at the little memorial near the gas chamber. And I told them to stop that. And I was just enraged after that. Oh, but I saw a lot of hope in my group specifically. I saw the light in the students' eyes and I saw a lot of hope that we can learn from this history, um, especially when working with high schoolers. So basically I love working with high schoolers the most. Some of the worst experiences I've had have been with adults on my tours, not at Sachsenhausen, because usually when I said right away, hey, my grandfather was here, they, especially the Germans, did not dare to say anything bad to me. Right. They did at Hohenschenhausen and my tours there. And that made me really upset. Um, like, hey, you're an American, you're young, you don't know what you're talking about. I was in the GDR and, oh, it wasn't a dictatorship. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, it was. I'm sorry. Right. Uh, I hate right. to break it to you. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, what kept me positive was that I felt I was doing something good by telling my grandpa's story for him. I think that was the biggest 
motivation for me. He died in 1999 from a heart attack. He also didn't like talking about it much. He couldn't talk about it much um, because it, it gave him nightmares and he would wake up in a sweat. And um, basically, I'm telling his story for him and I'm not letting people forget. It's a saying in the Jewish community, never forget. And I make sure no one forgets. And I think that's what kept me going. Not necessarily positive, but it gave me drive. Do you believe, as I somewhat recently have come to believe in what is often called inherited trauma? Yes, that is definitely an issue. I think that I don't so much have the inherited trauma. My mom definitely does. I noticed it as a society here in, in Germany. I see it in others. Um, I see how they have a lot of trouble and also in their personal lives talking openly about things because it was a Schweigkultur, so like a quieting culture uh, where it's hush-hush. People weren't supposed to talk about the Holocaust until the 1980s. People weren't supposed to talk about what the government is doing wrong because, you know, the Stasi is watching you over in East Germany. But in, in the Jewish community, I see a lot of it. Um, my mom, she's very anxious and she also passed that anxiety along to me. It could also be genetic. It is, there is definitely inherited trauma because you're growing up with someone who is traumatized. You have to walk on eggshells. And you also, like my mom is a very, she can be very pessimistic. Um, I know she doesn't like to be called that. <laughs> who, but, who, who would? Uh, she calls herself a realist. But the thing is, she is not surprised when bad things happen because the worst imaginable thing happened to her father. I think that really has an effect on on a child growing up with that with that father. He tried to hide it, of course. He was also, she says he was a really fun dad. But I think knowing that history about your dad makes a big impact. Yeah, of course, of course. Rachel, I don't know you well, though. I'm, I'm enjoying the opportunity to get to learn about you. But since I don't know you well, uh, please forgive me if this is a question that's unwelcome. Mm -hmm. But I wonder if your Herculean efforts in working at Sachsenhausen weren't part of a broader effort to somehow not just make sense of it, but to make it right and to set the record straight. Is there anything to that? I think it became that because, uh, to be completely honest, I was looking for money. I was looking for jobs. And I was like, hey, I'm kind of an expert at Sachsenhausen. Um, I could learn about that, uh, given what I know about my grandfather's history. And then while working there, I got really motivated to bring in what was bothering me even more, which was seeing how people were talking about Israel in the media and maybe trying to hold me accountable as a Jew for what Israel does and hearing all these stereotypes about Jews. And I think that in, in a way, like I was channeling my rage in that. It wasn't so much with my grandfather. It's like, okay, I grew up knowing that history. It's not even why I came to Germany. It had no relation to it. It's more like those two things came together at Sachsenhausen, like looking at my family's history and also um, me being a historian, trying to make a buck. 
and my anger at having to deal with uh, anti-Semitic comments back from the 2014 uh, war with Gaza. Now it's been a couple of years since you've worked at Sachsenhausen, and so I do want to pivot towards your more current work, which I'm also almost desperately interested in. But before I do, I just have one, I think, last question about Sachsenhausen. It having been some time, how do you reflect on your efforts to teach the truth to mostly young people at Sachsenhausen? I mean, I can't imagine that like these are fond memories. Maybe they are. I, I, I would love to know. With the benefit of hindsight, how do you look at that chapter in your professional life? Hmm. I mean, it's mixed. It, I feel I really grew as a person. I really got to know a lot of different people from all around the world, um, professors, teachers, students. Was there a time when you walked out of Sachsenhausen for what you presumed to be the last time, like your last day at work? And if so, can you just tell me how that felt? I felt really great not having to give tours there anymore. It's um, physically far away. That was already exhausting. Then giving tour after tour, I, I was very happy having been like, okay, I have a full-time job. I don't have to deal with this anymore. It was, I felt, okay, this was valuable time, but I don't need to do it again. And I felt very relieved. I'm very sympathetic, perhaps for want of a better word, for what it must be like to have to inhabit that space on a regular basis. I've been to Sachsenhausen a few times. I've gone alone. I've gone with students. And I just want to get the hell out of there. I mean, who wouldn't, right? And I I would imagine it to be a psychologically and emotionally overwhelming experience, even for the most well-settled among us. But I will also say that it's critically important work. I would even go so far as to say it's, it's, it's sacred work. And it's work that you didn't have the pleasure of doing in the friendly confines of a classroom, right? Like you're right there in the thick of it. And if I may say so, I find it terribly impressive that you're able to do it for as long as you did. And you seem to have gotten a lot out of it. And I'm sure that you gave more than you got. So right on to you, Rachel. I I don't want to spend too much time talking about what you have done. I really want to dive into what you're doing now. Can you help me to pivot to the Histories Together project that you're doing uh, at Hohenschönhausen? Just like start from the beginning. What are its goals and where are we at? Yeah, so um, Histories Together is just one part of the project. The full title is New Transmission Formats in Historical Political Education. And the idea was this was to bring in underrepresented groups. Um, So 
the interest groups of this project that were listed out and are still our interest groups, our target groups, are vocational school students, people with experience with political persecution and flight, and people with cognitive and learning disabilities. So these were three of the main groups that have been underrepresented in the statistics of the memorial. And that th this was the perfect opportunity to say, okay, we're going to use this uh, grant announcement from the BKM, from the this uh, public institution, to diversify the memorial and make it more inclusive. And what we created for bringing these people in, we created tours in, it doesn't really translate well, um, so it's einfache Sprache in German, which means easy language. We also translated things into leichter Sprache, which is simple language. And basically, easy language kind of targets people who have an intermediate German knowledge. And simple German, it sounds, it sounds kind of bad in, in English, but it's basically meant to target people who have um, beginner level, like elementary knowledge of German, of the language. And there are very specific rules that you have to follow. In translating that, it has to also be certified to then be considered fitting for the target groups. So what we did is we translated main parts of our Hohenschönhausen homepage into simple German. We also created tandem seminars for vocational students. That's where Histories Together comes in. Histories Together is this part dealing with the stories of persecution from back in Hohenschönhausen. So a combining a former prisoner of Hohenschenhausen and then a more current refugee from Syria or Afghanistan, Iran, Somalia, et cetera. Hey, so I'm really interested in the Histories Together project. I read a little bit about it in the Tandem project. Can you dive into those projects and what your work is vis-a-vis -vis those projects? So a Histories Together project is one main component. It's the integration component. We have integration and inclusion for our project at Hohenschönhausen. And Histories Together is the name that we gave our tandem seminars that we conceived and that we conduct. So we do everything end-to-end -end with that. And the concept of the tandem seminars is uh, our main audience is Usually high school students, the main target group is vocational students. What we're trying to do is transmit the theme of political persecution in the past and present. Not trying to say, oh, look, uh, the history of the GDR is exactly the same as what's going on in Syria. But we want to show parallels to what is it like being in a dictatorship what is it like being um, being persecuted by a dictatorship? What are the reasons that you could be persecuted? What what would drive you to then flee from your country? And we're we're trying to show that through our tandem seminars. And the best way to learn is not only being in a place of history, so being at Hohenschönhausen and showing the cell where the former prisoner was locked up, was kept by the Shazi but also having the former prisoners telling the stories themselves, combining not only general knowledge of, okay, this is what the GDR was like, hearing that directly from someone who was there um, and hearing what he says uh, about why he tried to flee or maybe he tried to help people flee. What were his motivations for that? Same thing goes with the person who fled from Syria, let's say, or from Afghanistan. Why did they need to flee? 
what family did they leave behind? Humanizing this for people through these stories. I mean, history is best learned through stories. And I think what, what we're really aiming for in our seminars is we're trying to show what the differences are. Because nowadays, a lot of people will complain, it's a dictatorship, this, or this is fascism, <laughs> right, or right. this is like in the GDR. And it's like, no, it isn't. Listen, and we'll tell you what a dictatorship is. Oh, the fact that you can go and protest that you're wearing a mask. I mean, look at that. That's freedom of speech. And these are things that seem so self-evident, but a lot of people forget that. So, so we're tr trying to empower these young people, show them they have a voice in their democracy, and they can also help change this and not just say, oh, that sucks over there in Syria. And I think what also what we aim for with the seminars is full integration. Integration is a two-way street, and a lot of it involves knowing the stories of one another. So newcomers, as we call them, coming here from Syria, a lot of them have to do integration courses anyway. So actually, we do have sometimes groups of refugees who then do our, our seminars. So them learning about German history, that's very important to know, like what's the history of the country you're living in. Uh, and a lot of them are doing a great job at learning German. But then also it has to come from the other end. Like we have to know what cultures are coming here. This is something that's for me self-evident as an American coming from this, this multi-culti, like a melting pot of San Diego, where we had people from, from China, India, Mexico, you welcome those different cultures and you have to learn about them and learn about their religions as well. This doesn't mean, oh, give up what my culture is. And I think that needs to become apparent. And that's what we're trying to show and trying to break down these barriers. With these seminars, we also give a safe space for people to just like, just fire off their questions in, in, without feeling, oh, I'm maybe offending this uh, refugee. I'm offending the Syrian guy standing in front of me telling his story because that's why he's here. He's, he's here to answer your questions. Same thing with the guy from the GDR. You can ask whatever you want. When do we have that opportunity in everyday life? When do we have that opportunity in school unless a guest speaker is brought in? I mean, I can imagine there would be a lot, a lot fewer stereotypes um, about Jews or misconceptions about Jews if you know more people would have that safe space with someone like me to just ask whatever they want. I mean, this is also people's chance to ask about Islam and also see, hey, like Islam is very varied. And they can maybe ask if they want, like, hey, um, like, how does your religion play into this? It's not just those people we see in media who um, are part of ISIS. Actually, a lot of the people who are refugees here, they were fleeing from ISIS. They're being persecuted by Islamists, but they themselves are Muslim because, of course, Islam is a big term. And we're just seeing that it's very multifaceted. We want to get people away from this black and white thinking. We want to get them away from misconceptions, from racist misconceptions and Islamophobic misconceptions that um, from the media. What I'm most curious about here is how you, in doing your day-to-day -day work, help to achieve that lofty and frankly, beautiful objective. Maybe we should start as it starts. What happens in the morning when you get into the office slash prison and get to work? So the best way to break it down was there were three components to this. 
to achieving our goals of breaking down racism, distributing knowledge, getting people more aware of democracy, we had to first have a conception phase. And this was the first uh, couple of months of our project. So the conceptual part was um, I had intensive brainstorming sessions with my colleague, with Yanina. It was like think tank style. We would meet in cafes and in our office. Like, how do we best structure the tandem seminars? We were spending a lot of time uh, trying to become like, in a way, experts. But of course, we knew we weren't experts. Like, so researching a lot on the history of Syria, history of Islam, Uh, the inner workings of Islam, um, looking at the demographics of the countries we're working with. But then what we did is we didn't want to talk about the refugees without their input. So we had actually these think tank sessions with Syrian refugees to hear their advice and knowledge on what to present in the Tanim seminars to see what parts of their history are important to mention, what is important for you to mention in your story, We had to then find like a skeletal structure of our seminars. We all had to agree on a common goal. So like showing parallels between dictatorships then and now, consequences of those, why asylum is necessary, and providing time for people to ask questions to refugees in a safe space. And so what we had to do is we had to uh, think, okay, how are we going to pack all this in? And after these intensive brainstorming sessions and getting input also from other pedagogues, from our pedagogical uh, work um, department in the memorial, we finally figured out how we would structure a three or five hour seminar with two stories packed into it, as well as the tour and the historical context without confusing or overwhelming these students. Can you give me a sense of what the product of all of this concerted thinking and reaching out to your stakeholders and your colleagues, what does this three to five hour experience look like? Can you give a sense of what that experience is for, say, a high school student coming in? And basically it's five hours of alternating between interactive exercises and listening to the eyewitnesses. We call them eyewitnesses in German, like Zeitzeugen. And how we structured it is, of course, you have to warm people up. A lot of times these are people who are coming in at like 9 or 10 a.m. You know, they're like, oh, okay, maybe half asleep. You have to then activate them and start getting them to think about like, well, what are what am I doing here? Maybe the teacher told them about it. We want to make sure we're all on the same page that we're talking about political persecution. So we do an interactive activity with, uh, for instance, pa- uh, pairing up uh, photos, like photos from the GDR, like from the Cold War, and then from now, like showing images of refugees, showing um, uh, asylum status photos, refugee center, and then they start getting from there a feel for what uh, this is about. We try not to play too much of a frontal role. We try not to give things away. We try to have them come to their own conclusions. And then we give them the overview that we first talk about the GDR history and do a timeline activity with them, interactive to also see what their previous knowledge is. And then the former prisoner talks about his, I say his because most of our um, former prisoners right now are male, but of course we also have some women. They tell their personal stories and they walk the, um, the group through the memorial, through the former prison, uh, showing the former interrogation center and what was going on there and talking about the methods of the Stasi. 
And then there's a break, like a lunch break. And after that, we have the reflection phase. So time to ask questions about the GER before moving on to the history of Syria or Afghanistan or Somalia. And then uh, we do the same thing, a similar thing with an interactive uh, timeline with Syria to try to gather what previous knowledge they have. And then we actually have the Syrian refugee explain the timeline himself because we think, okay, he can do it better than we can, even though we've researched. And once that part is done, he then goes and tells his story about why he needed to flee and also what it's been like for him in Germany what his arrival was like, if he was welcomed, uh, or uh, we leave a lot of time for questions. And then the student, a lot of time pe people ask like, okay, how long did it take for you to learn German? Um, how, welcome, how welcome do you feel here? Do you ever want to go back to Syria? Um, and then they start realizing a lot of times through that, oh, you would want to go back to Syria, but it's too dangerous. Okay, gotcha. Like, it's not just this, and then it starts becoming apparent to them, like, hey, it's not just this decision, like, hey, I just felt like coming to Germany. Right, right. It's like, yeah, I had to leave everything and start my life anew. And then after that, they have time for questions for both of the eyewitnesses. Um, and then at the end, we also ask, we not only pass around a, an anonymous feedback form, but we also ask, so what are you taking with you today? And a lot of times they come to the conclusions that we would have wanted or maybe even extra ones that we weren't even intending for. So a lot of times they're like, hey, yeah, there's, there's still dictatorships today and we take our democracy for granted. They're really making connections faster than I've seen a lot of adults make connections. And I feel then that just this great accomplishment and they're, they're like, wow, it was so special hearing someone's story and why he had to come here and why we need asylum. And you especially get that with Afghanistan. So it's not our goal to say, hey, this country needs asylum. But I, myself, as Rachel, I'm saying, yes, like we can see that it's a very dangerous country and people should not be getting sent back there. Just listen to the story. And I see this light in people's eyes. And then I think, okay, they got it. Yeah. I'd imagine that there are innumerable times where you see the light bulb go off, particularly with the young people who you rightfully seem to prize teaching. I have one last question about this project that you're managing and developing. It's really challenging work. And I also think it's really beautiful what you're striving to do. Can you tell the story of a really challenging moment where two cultures interfaced and two experiences interfaced? And it was just like really challenging for you. And then can you tell just a beautiful story of cultures connecting despite adverse circumstances? Hmm. I have to say we have been super fortunate to have really respectful participants in our seminars. We've never had an issue. I, we haven't had an issue with the tandem teams. They get along so well, the former prisoners and the, and the refugees, and have so much empathy for one another. 
that that's been that's been great. I mean, the only trouble that we had, but we were able to sort it out was um, that we recently had a seminar where there were actually a couple of uh, Syrian refugees in the group. Um, it was actually an online seminar, and we hadn't been debriefed that they were there. And we're also we're always very careful at not re-traumatizing people or like not bringing back bad memories. And um, and I think also is this was a situation where because it was a a vocational school where they're also half of the time in the like at work and half of the time in the class. The I don't think the teachers really knew where um, where people were from and the fellow students not necessarily because it all started in Corona time, so everything was online was digital. And basically, when they told the story, then all of a sudden they started telling their own stories, and we could notice that they they weren't doing very well like emotionally. And we had to have a talk with the, once the online tenant seminar was over, we had to take some extra time talking to them and hearing their stories. But I actually wasn't so concerned because I said, you know, there's some people, they just don't mention it. And I think these are people who they usually, they said themselves, they don't usually talk about their, that they're refugees or the people know, okay, they're refugees, but they don't talk about all the trauma they've experienced seeing people killed by ISIS, by the Assad regime. But they, I could tell in that moment they had the need to tell it. And actually one of the young men in the group, when we were talking to him alone away from the other students, he was showing us photos back from when he was a, a refugee and showing the boat. And he really had the need in that moment to show us. And so we listened attentively and I think, and I think that helped. Uh, it helped him get off, get it off his chest. Yeah, that sounds that sounds terribly challenging. But I want to hear the other side too. I would like you to share a story of something beautiful that happened in one of these cultural exchanges. I think every time that we watched a tandem team, like the tandem pair, meet each other, that was really touching to see how they were listening to one another with empathy, like the former prisoners and the refugees. And um, also being able to see them get moved to tears by the other person's uh, story. I, I think that was really, that was really touching. And also hearing then the former prisoners talk about, hey, I don't really understand why someone would have something against you but that's the thing, like we wouldn't have picked a, a former prisoner who's like not empathetic. Right, like a callous mm -hmm. person, right? You, you're able to select people who, it's almost a self-selecting mm -hmm. group of people who are willing and able to be so vulnerable. I mean, the vulnerability of this project is really overwhelming to me. I can't imagine what it must be like for these people to willingly and rather regularly step back into that ring and sort of run the risk of re-traumatizing themselves. And for that matter, you have people who were imprisoned in Hohenschönhausen and they return to the scene of their dehumanization to relive that in front of an audience um, the prisoners that we draw from, we already have a pool of former prisoners um, who give tours already at Hohenschönhausen. So we're dealing with former prisoners who are completely willing to talk about their stories. 
So that's also self-selecting. These are people who went and applied to be tour guides, freelance tour guides at Hornschenhausen and are giving tours. And that's actually one of the big uh, things why, why the memorial is so popular and famous. It's interesting for me because I, my grandfather was someone who didn't want to talk about his trauma. And also, I want to say with the refugees, they came to us when we advertised. So they had to then be ready to talk about their histories. And we checked with them many times and walked them through it. And we had them tell their stories in private to us and then to the person they were paired up with to make sure that they were going to be okay. Sometimes you can't always predict. Sometimes something could go wrong in, in the seminar itself, at which point we have a, um, like a Betriebsarzt, like, like a doctor who works, who's associated with the Hohenschönhausen. Um, and we also have a connection, like a, a, someone who specializes in psychology at Charité, a connection for that, who has experience with refugees and with trauma. And we have her as a contact person in case we would need to do a um, Nachbereitung, like, like a mediation or whatever, cashing yeah. it out with someone like getting psychological support. You know, Rachel, it is very much the case that what happens there is challenging, although it really sounds like it's challenging in all the right ways. And it's been a pleasure to hear the story of this project that you've been developing and to hear your story and how you interface so wholeheartedly with modern history. And I've learned a lot from you, but I can't let you go. I just can't let you go until you tell me two stories. Can you tell me the story of one professional triumph and one professional failure? And we'll start with the failure so we could end on a note of triumph. I wouldn't know. I don't know if I would call it a professional failure because it all worked out in the end, but it was actually pretty funny at the time. I had just started working in in my in the Bundestag um, with Dagmar Freitag as my boss. I was sitting in on one of the meetings. I was supposed to actually go and uh, meet with a I think it was like a lobby group or like an interest group with her. And the car was picking us up at a specific time. Um, it wasn't really communicated to me that there was going to be a car picking us up. And I was sitting there and I realized I, I saw what time we needed to leave. I was told what time we needed to like, what time we were leaving, but I wasn't told what time we were leaving like that room. And so I thought, oh, I'll just go to the bathroom. And this was the first week of my internship. Like, I'll just go to the bathroom quickly before we head out. And I leave. And I come back and I was supposed to go with her and she's just gone. Oh no. And I'm like, um, what? And basically one of the staffers was just looking at me across the, the room. This is in the, in the Paul Lübe house, like the, the German government building. And she's just like mouthing to me, what, why aren't you with her? And I was just freaking out thinking, oh my God, she's going to hate me. And we found out, okay, where is she? And we were talking about, okay, she's already in the car. The car, like, because it's a service for the uh, parliamentarians, for the members of parliament. And the car was already taking her across town in Berlin. And I'm thinking, okay, my colleagues, the fellow staffers are like, okay, do you want to try to catch up with her? Do you want to try walking there? Do you want to take public transit? And I was like, you know what? At this point, I don't think it really makes a difference. It's just a half hour session, that meeting that she's having. I ended up meeting up with my boss after that. 
I was like, I'm so sorry about before. And she's like, I was wondering where you were. Hmm. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, she's going to hate me. She's going to hate me. And, but she's just so gracious and just the, one of the best bosses I've ever had. I had an amazing time with her. Um, she's still even like, if she sees something that would interest me, she still texts it to me on WhatsApp and I, she's just a wonderful, wonderful former boss. So it actually turned out fine. It sounded like it turned out perfectly. It's almost a story of triumph, but I won't let you step on your own triumph. Let's drive this train into the station with a story of a professional triumph. I guess a good story of professional triumph would be the time that the Secretary of State was coming to visit, go on a private tour of Hohenschönhausen. Um, so this was uh, last year. Um, so the Secretary of State in the in the Trump administration, of course, I mean, politically, I don't agree with him in any way, but I was thinking, hey, I'm the only American working here. I should actually have the chance to meet him. Initially, we weren't, no one was supposed to talk to him. He was supposed to only go to certain stations, have former prisoners telling him their stories, have it being simultaneously translated, and then he leaves. I pushed my way into sitting across the table from him. Um, but I got to be there. I got to sit across, like look him in the eye and be open for any questions. Even my director was wonderful. He actually even was presenting. He's like, Ms. Dixon here is working on a wonderful project, trying to like break down barriers. And he was really praising my work directly to the secretary of state and to all of his staffers and to all the secret service. And so even though the secretary of state decided not to ask me any questions, there were definitely people in Washington who heard about my project, thanks to my wonderful director, really like pitching it and uh, praising my work directly to him. So that was that was amazing. I am going to take from your story that your professional triumph is surviving a room with that particular secretary of state and um, not blurting out anything that might have been truthful and offensive to him. That is uh, rather impressive that you managed to maintain your patience and your professionalism face-to-face -face with someone of his particular predilections. Um, but it sounds like a cool experience, and I'm really happy that you were able to get your project on the tongues of important people on the other side of the Atlantic. Surely there are people in the United States, and particularly in the United States government these days, that could and should learn some very important lessons from you and from your team at Hohenschönhausen. I got to tell you, in listening to you talk about what you do, the work is obviously so important, but it's also really overwhelming. But you seem to approach it with this level of hyper-focus and drive. And I find myself really inspired by that. Like it's really in a way comforting to know that there are people like you who are so deeply committed to trying to create cross-cultural dialogue and to empower people to tell their stories. I think it's really special and that's why I wanted to have you on the podcast. I'm grateful for what you do and I'm grateful that you're at the wheel helping to drive these conversations. Rachel Dickstein, it was a pleasure to learn from you. It was a pleasure to have you on Studs. 
Thank you for being here. Yeah, and thank you for having me on here. It was a pleasure for me as well. A lot of fun talking about my work. Well, there you have it, my friends. My conversation with Rachel Dickstein. If you live in Berlin and you haven't been to the Hohenschönhausen Prison Memorial, allow me to take the liberty to urge you to visit. It's a splendidly curated reminder of what we're fighting against and what we should be fighting for. Rachel's pretty awesome, right? For sure. Okay, so subscribe and leave a review. If you dig what you hear, please tell a friend or two. And if studs mean something to you and you have the means to give a few, please consider supporting me over at patreon.com studs. I hope you'll tune in next week. I got a conversation lined up with an ultra runner, a dude called Zach Miller. Fascinating fella. Don't miss that one. Please. And until then, from the bottom of my heart, I wish you health. I wish you wellness. I hope that spring is in the air wherever you may be. And I hope that you have a spring in your step. I hope you have some space in your heart. Hope your empathy levels are up. And I hope you're thriving. All right, catch you next week. <laughs>